Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast. I hope everybody's feeling healthy and making the very best out of social distancing as we close out what I cannot believe is only week three of this isolation. I'm Kristen Roberts, head of news at McClatchy, and I'm coming to you from my home at an undisclosed location in Miami. Today, I'm joined by Alex Rorty, our political correspondent from McClatchy, who is himself recording from his home in Washington, D.C., but I actually think we all know where that is now, because didn't you disclose it last week as Adams Morgan? It's in Adams Morgan, and it's, uh, it's wonderful to be back on the show, Kristen. Glad you're uh, hosting again and, and feeling well. Well, you know. Slight tickle in the throat, but you know that's. Kind of, we'll see. We're gonna, we'll see. We're, we're going to pause halfway through, and everyone can can take their temperature to make oh, sure. Oh, that's yeah, a good right. idea. <laughs> so that other voice is Adam Wallner, who runs the political desk for us in D.C. Adam, I think, is particularly excited today because we plan to talk about some place known as Wisconsin. So yeah. he's not going to have to shoehorn it into this conversation as he always does. Hello, Adam. Hi. I don't know if I necessarily agree with the whole shoehorning part. I think I bring it up naturally in the course of the, the conversation, but but we'll, we'll let that slide for the, for the I can't believe we yeah, agreed super. to talk about Wisconsin today. I mean, just, just the, <laughs> the look on his face right now. He's, he's like a kid in a candy store. I totally wish people could see your face right let's now. Just, let's just get to it. Let's just skip the first topic. All right. So on today's episode, we're not going to skip that first topic. We're going to start by talking about the Trump White House and other leading Republicans who are starting to point fingers at one another for the overall government's slow-footed response to the pandemic. We'll also talk about some Democratic governors, too, because interestingly enough, Trump praised one of them this week, uh, California's governor. We're going to talk about what it says about the political situation as the general election begins, and then we will turn to next week's election in Wisconsin, assuming that it is not postponed. And uh, I don't know. I guess that's it. We can talk about two things and be done. You guys ready? Let's do it. Absolutely. All right, Alex. Um, the differences among the states, both in terms of their responses to this threat and their success in flattening the curve, is actually pretty stark in my view. How much of each state's ability to get what it needs out of D.C., out of the federal government, is related to their governor's relationship with this president? Well, I think that's the question that some Democrats are asking. I feel like it is going to become a bigger question, particularly after we get past the initial crisis, whenever that might be, maybe for the rest of this month, maybe until the summer, maybe beyond. But I feel like there is going to be a point where people, and by people, I mean the actual public as a whole. I mean, this is going to be one of the few political issues that really does reach every single person. Every single person is going to bring scrutiny. And they're going to look back on this time and they're going to ask themselves, a few questions. I think they're going to ask themselves, how did the government prepare and did it adequately prepare for this pandemic? And once the, the, the virus did arrive here in the country and it did start spreading rapidly, how did we respond? And I think those are the, the two primary questions that people are going to ask. And politically right now, it's fluid, right? Because President Trump's numbers, look, they have receded somewhat from last week. And we see that in a number of polls, some only by a marginal amount, but it appears to be significant. And, and I think that's the, the context in which the president's performance is going to be judged. And to, the, to your question, there are going to be questions like, why was Florida able to get so much of the equipment in order? I mean, 100% of it, actually, whereas other states seem like they're struggling to get anything or what they are being sent, you know, they're being sent broken ventilators or expired masks. And, you know, look, one of my questions is, Kristen, is whether or not you got involved in Florida and you personally just secured all the masks for 
for, for, for Florida <laughs> and that you're really the, the driving force b- behind a lot of this. Quietly. Yeah, I just called Kushner. I just called Kushner. I was like, look, bro. We need some stuff down here. You have the direct line to the the man in power in the White House. Literally before we got on the podcast, I was on a call with some Democratic strategists who are putting, you know, that predates the virus's Democratic polling and messaging group. And they they had said even their own numbers had shown that Trump's approval and his, his, his approval of his handling of this crisis really did receive a bump a couple of weeks ago. Their numbers also show it receding in the last few weeks. And their point is, look, as we have stated many times in the show, I mean, any kind of bold predictions or firm predictions about how this will play out are are silly and foolhardy. But their point is that, look, this is something that has sunk in and is still sinking into the entire public. And we don't know how they're going to react until, as unfortunately is the case, when everyone either knows someone who had coronavirus coronavirus, know someone who lost a job because of this crisis, or they themselves have to deal with this until the full breadth of that is felt. And that won't be felt, you know, for at least another several months. We don't know how the public is going to react, but it's possible that the backlash could be furious. I'm going to jump in here one second before you do, Adam, because I think it's really important for all of us to remember that there are not small swaths of America where the experience is not the experience of Sacramento or Washington, D.C. or New York or South Florida. When I think about this, I think about Texas in particular, right? So Texas's coronavirus cases are are really um, quite focused around their urban population centers. And I think it's one of the reasons that Governor Abbott has held off on issuing the stay-at-home order across the entire state, because huge parts of Texas are relatively unaffected by this. So when we talk about how voters feel this, I think voters in different places are going to feel it differently. Totally. Every state is, you know, dealing with a slightly, you know, diff- different situation uh, than, than, you know, the, the one that's maybe next door to it. I and mean, that's why you've seen, I think, such varying reactions from different types of governors, regardless of political party, regardless of their relationship to Trump. And, you know, kind of to your original question, Kristen, I think, you know, maybe one kind of consistent through line we can draw with, you know, the governors who are, you know, looking pretty good coming out of a lot of it is that they didn't have a very close relationship to Trump at the beginning of this. So they didn't feel like they had to wait for the White House or they had to take their cues from the White House or didn't want to, you know, make it look like they were breaking with the White House. They just said they can do whatever they want to do in Washington, D.C. I'm going to do what's right for, you know, the, the constituents in, in, in my state. And, and it's been a wide range of states from a political standpoint. You know, you have kind of your traditional blue state governors in Washington. Washington State, New York, California that have been ahead of the curve. But you've also had Republican governors in states like Maryland with Larry Hogan, Ohio, Mike DeWine, that also haven't been afraid to break with Trump on this and sort of get ahead of the curve on this early. And then the ones that did sort of have to wait and take their cues from Trump because, again, they're worried about the political ramifications in states like Florida, in Georgia, in Texas. You know, we didn't see them until this week start to issue their statewide stay-at-home orders because, you know, one, obviously the situation is just getting so out of hand in some of these states between the number of cases, the unemployment numbers in these states. And I think, you know, Trump finally sort of gave them an opening this week, you know, with some of his remarks at his daily press conferences, sort of acknowledging the severity of the situation. But it still is really at this point, the governors who are really driving the response to this. And that's, you know, something we had, we had talked about a couple of weeks ago on this podcast. And I think, you know, remains true today that they, you know, a lot of these governors are still a step or two ahead of Trump and a lot of his sort of allied governors around the country on this. The situation that on folded this week 
in Florida was, I think, one of a kind, right? I think it speaks to Governor Santos's, what Governor Santos believes his relationship is with the president, his desire to have the president understand that he's going to do what the president tells him to do because he was under significant pressure for quite a long time from officials of both parties throughout the state of Florida to take the step to lock down the state. And he wouldn't do it until he got the call from the president. It's a very interesting thing that is, I think, peculiar and particular to the relationship between DeSantis and Trump. Let me just say, I mean, in, in terms of why that's important, and I actually think it goes back to why it's important how you run your, your race for election to begin with, right? Because Ron DeSantis was the, the prime example of every Republican running in the Trump era in 2018. His strategy was making it clear to everyone that he was an ally of Donald Trump. He had a very competitive Republican primary, and their entire strategy was, we're an ally of Trump, we're here to support the president, we embrace the president's worldview, and it worked, right? His strategy was not to go barnstorming, campaigning across the state. It was to get in a Fox News green room and to try to communicate directly and build a bridge directly to the president, Donald Trump. And, and that was his entire campaign strategy. And I don't think it should surprise anyone then, and it's why it's important to note how people get to the office. The politics that, that dictated his primary strategy, his general election strategy, then dictate how he serves in office, right? He understands that this is core to his political identity. It's core to him holding on to his own base of support, which frankly is, is more and more important in elections as the kind of proverbial electoral middle shrinks. You have to be able to hold on to your own base of support or you're done with as a politician. And so I don't think it should be a surprise. And, and now we get to see the, the possible political fallout from that. And there's certainly an element here of just pure, naked, blue versus R politics when you consider Florida and its role in Trump's own reelection, right? And, and most of the cases are in the part of Florida where Biden might be polling better right now and, and certainly where DeSantis wasn't polling well walking into his own election in 18. Right. Again, you know, obviously the, a lot of the, the early uptick in a lot of these coronavirus cases are happening in more urban areas. Areas, more democratic areas. So just from a kind of purely political standpoint, you know, it might take some of these Republican governors a little bit longer to come around to the conclusion that they need to, to take action. And I think, you know, Larry Hogan would be, you know, kind of a great sort of comparison to, to Ron DeSantis in this case, along the lines Alex was talking about in, in terms of you have to, you know, govern the way you campaign. It's not like Larry Hogan, you know, a Republican running in a very blue state of Maryland was tying himself to Trump at every turn when he was first running for office. And he certainly hasn't done it while he's been in office. I mean, you remember, remember even last year, he actually came out in support of Trump's impeachment. He knows that he's representing a blue state. He's not going to just be able to walk the traditional Republican line and side himself with Trump if he wants to remain in that office uh, for the foreseeable future. So it's just been interesting to see. And then, you know, you have Mike DeWine as well in Ohio, maybe a, a closer comparison to DeSantis uh, representing a, a more traditional battleground state. But Ohio, you know, I think we've seen that over the past few years as well. There still is kind of a, a more independent streak in the Republican Party there. You know, you have the John Kasichs of the world there who aren't going to necessarily necessarily tie themselves to Trump uh, at every turn. Ah, John Kasich. You remember that guy? <laughs> I want to piggyback off Adam's point because, I mean, this is not just entirely a, a sort of partisan split, right? Because when I right. think of people who have received praise for their response, I really think of Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Adam just mentioned him. 
as, as kind of on the forefront of this and really even ahead of the curve when he, you know, really aggressively tried to postpone or postpone the primary in Ohio at a time when other states, including states with Democratic governors, were not doing that. And there was, I, you mm-hmm. know, at that time, it was seen as, as kind of a 50-50 decision in some corners and that there was a case that democracy should continue as some governors say. And I have to say that a few weeks later, the more that we've learned about this pandemic, that seems like a, a crazy decision to, to hold an election and to, to continue to unnecessarily spread this disease. And uh, on the other side of that, too, I mean, look, we can talk about some of the, the criticism that President Trump has received, but I think just as much, and in particular in New York City, it's Mayor Bill de Blasio. You might remember ran for president last year. Not many <laughs> remember. Not many people remember that. But I really think he has become a face of criticism for his own lackluster response to this crisis. And so it is not entirely a, a partisan issue, although... Kristen, as you said, I mean, the president just dictates so much of what is acceptable and encouraged within the Republican Party that that did set a tone. It's one of the reasons why Mike DeWine just completely separating himself early, I think, has insulated himself from any kind of political fallout that that could come later this year. Yeah, I think it's also important to go back to something that we mentioned right at the top, and that's California. You know, there are perhaps no, um, there's no love lost between the governor of California and the president of the United States. However, California and Washington State, by the way, have done quite a good job relative to other states in flattening their curve. And the White House has praised them this week. And and I think it's important for us to remember that, that it's very hard to put President Trump's approach into a box or say that it fits a pattern because there really are no patterns with this president. He likes DeSantis. That's why Florida gets 100% of its requests. He doesn't like Hogan. That's why Maryland is going to get nothing. He doesn't like California, but they're doing really well. And it's helping the United States to look like it's getting itself back on track, right? And so he's going to praise California. So I think it's just important to remember that he can surprise us with who he decides to like one week in or one week out, right? Right. And I think one governor we should also uh, bring up that we haven't mentioned yet is uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, who has definitely been having a bit of a moment this week. She was already kind of being floated as a potential vice presidential pick for Joe Biden, even before this coronavirus crisis. And Biden even confirmed himself this week that she is is on the shortlist and she is certainly getting a lot more attention nationally, thanks to her sort of feud that she's actually had with with Donald Trump here the past few days. She was actually just on The Daily Show last night wearing that woman from Michigan shirt. That's what Trump kind of derisively called her. And actually, a lot of Republicans are a little concerned about this particular spat with a governor in a swing state like Michigan. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what her moves are going forward in the next few weeks, whether or not she's the vice presidential pick for Joe Biden. She will certainly be a a key figure in that campaign. And I think moving on past 2020, she has really established herself as a national figure in this party. Overall, like the thing that really sticks out to me right now is there is not a politician in America who's being criticized at the moment for over reacting to this crisis, right? I mean, there's there's no one who everyone says, oh, well, they just went too far. They were trying to be too proactive. They hurt That's the economy true. too much. That's not true. You think I, people I mean, are being criticized for that? I know that there are people who are criticizing officials for lockdowns. All you have to do is look at Fresno. I mean, Devin Nunes is saying everybody is taking this too seriously, Right. There are members of Congress who are taking pictures of themselves in crowded places and encouraging people to go out and shop and eat with others. That is happening. Do do you think that that is like where the public is, though, by and large, that the public right now, that there's a, a strong feeling among voters that 
there's there, there's like a backlash brewing against Mike DeWine or a backlash brewing against Andrew Cuomo. Dude, or Jay you Inslee. know I do not enjoy polls, and so I'm not going to pretend to do a fake poll in my head, right? That's not fair. I, I think that there is a wide range of viewpoints, and I think we can see that on social media. We can see that in reaction to news reports. We can see it in conversations with family and friends. That there remains a wide range of viewpoints about the severity of this crisis and the actions that uh, government officials, no matter the level they're on, local, state, or federal, have taken in response to the crisis. But it gets back to the point I was trying to make earlier. I think that is related directly to where people live and the experience of coronavirus in that geographic area. For sure. I guess the question is, and this is a better question for an epidemiologist, by the end of this, is there going to be any area that's that's not affected? Because it sounds like it might start in New York and move to Detroit and New Orleans. But eventually, there will be no part of the United States that is that is spared from this. Maybe our producer, Jeremy, is an epidemiologist. Are you an epidemiologist <laughs> in your spare time, friend? You no? just love doing podcasts in your spare time. All right, listen, you know who is not going to be social distancing next week? Voters in Wisconsin. So apparently, Adam, there is a land known as Wisconsin, and I would like to know what is wrong with the people of this land? I think I'll stick to uh, just what's going on with, with the uh, election next week. You know, I'm not going to badmouth my own people here, but it is notable that Wisconsin is the only state that will be holding in-person voting for the presidential primary in the month of April. Puerto Rico is also voting on, on April 26th, but that would be the only other territory that, that is still going to be holding any sort of in-person voting this month. Every other state that was scheduled to vote in April, and there were quite a few, have either postponed their election or are voting entirely by mail. And and it's assuming that it still happens, you know, they are receiving more and more backlash as, as we get closer to that April 7th election date for still holding this election. Bernie Sanders this week called on the state to postpone. Even the Wisconsin Democratic Party chairman just last night also called on the state to postpone. But it's going to provide an interesting test case for if we get into November and this coronavirus pandemic is still a major issue, how states are going to handle running their elections. Because I think as we have established on previous episodes of the podcast, there's basically no way that we're going to be able to actually move the election date itself, the general election date. So that means states need to start preparing now for how they are going to allow people to be able to vote while also feeling safe. And obviously one of the primary ways of doing that is is going to be mail-in balloting. That's something that Democrats in Wisconsin are encouraging people to do in the state. But I think what Wisconsin's just, just the chaos that is happening here also brings to light is just how complicated it is to sort of change the dynamics of an election and how it's different from state to state. Why is Wisconsin the only state that hasn't moved? Because it's a much more complicated process to delay the election there than in other states that were voting in April. Other states, the governor just, just sort of issued a declaration and said, okay, we're going to vote in June now instead of April. And everyone's like, great, that sounds good. In Wisconsin, you have to go through multiple steps in the state legislature in order to do so. GOP leaders there have not had the appetite for that. And even the Democratic governor, Tony Evers, hasn't really pushed too too hard for that either. But really, the, the one thing that does make Wisconsin unique is that there are several other elections that are happening on Tuesday. There's a very important Supreme Court race. There's a lot of other kind of local elections that are happening on April 7th. And the fear there is that a lot of posts are just going to be left vacant in the coming weeks if the election is delayed you know, more than a couple weeks. So again, that gets us back to how does this affect November? Obviously, there's a ton of elections that are going to be happening in November. It's not just the, the presidential election. So all these states have to figure out 
how, how do we run elections in our states from upwards of, you know, the presidential level all the way down to, you know, local, you know, school board seats in, in, in a safe way? And there isn't, you know, one clear answer, I think, on how to do that. And that's why, you know, we're still in a situation where Wisconsin is kind of stuck in this limbo between they technically still have in-person voting. They're encouraging people to vote by mail, but they, they have not actually moved their election yet. What's that say here? I mean, you're hitting voters wanting to exercise their, their right to vote versus their own health. And not just their own health, but the health of their partner. Uh, Voter the die. Their, their wasn't, that a, wasn't that a death? <laughs> literally. Voter <laughs> 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 die got very literal. Who used that? Someone used that before, right? Vote and possibly yeah. die yeah. at this point. And it is absolutely. And, and I think there is going to be a lot of scrutiny next week on the election and the turnout. And just as importantly, who didn't turn out because it could be a, a preview of the general election in November with obviously considerably higher stakes across the country. And I think that's why you start to see a panic. And we also, I think this week we can say that voting by mail and officially on the GOP side became a solid even fervent no, president even saying on Monday during a, an interview that he thought basically vote by mail would guarantee that Democrats win. I think, by the way, that's a question really worth exploring. I think it's rooted in the idea that all the low propensity voters are Democrats and indeed a lot of their coalition or some parts of their coalition are. That's also true of the Republican side. It is actually a lot more true than it was a decade ago, given the demographic shifts. And Adam, as, as you very well know, there's even speculation that a lot of low propensity voters in a place like, say, Wisconsin are not actually Democratic voters. They wouldn't be Democratic-leaning. They would be inclined to vote for Trump. I think that is something that deserves a, a lot of scrutiny. But look, it, it, it is something that I get to say on a personal level is, is really truly worrying that we don't know what is going to happen with this pandemic, if it's going to come back in the fall, like experts say that it might. But if we get into a position where people, again, are forced to choose between voting for a presidential election that an awful lot of people care an awful lot about and preserving their own health, I mean, you, you might have an election that a lot of Americans won't see as legitimate if people stay home, if people stay away. And that's on either side, by the way. I mean, I would point out it's no secret a lot of Republicans draw their votes from a lot of older citizens, well, they're the ones who are at risk here. You right. know, those are the, the, the voters most at risk. I, I don't understand why Republicans don't have more concern about this. Now, look, maybe there will be steps taken that there will be more polling places, that there will be social distancing guidelines. It just seems like at this point that Republicans are not going to embrace mail by vote. And I think it's a really open question how you can guarantee that people can vote safely if you don't give them access that way. Right. And next week's election as well. I mean, there's going to be very few polling places, it looks like, that are actually going to be open because then the other side of this is you're not going to actually be able to find poll workers to, to work at these polling sites who are also concerned about their own health. You know, the governor had to deploy the, the Wisconsin National Guard uh, to work some of these places in order to make sure people are able to vote. So I guess the, the outstanding question is then what is the answer if there's not enough overwhelming support for mail voting, but then you're just not going to have um, enough physical polling places open and people concerned about actually physically traveling to go vote. You know, what, what, what is the middle ground here? I, you know, I don't know what, what the answer to that is right now. Does anybody? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> can, we, can we solve? I was, I was trying to come up with an answer. The, 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 yeah, can we solve the, the problem of how do we get people safely uh, to the polls or safely to vote in November? Obviously, we have a few months to figure this out, but state and local governments need to start figuring this out now. They want to be able to encourage participation in November. I think that Adam just gave you a story assignment. I love that. I love when that happens. It's happened now <laughs> twice on our podcast. All right, guys, we're going to move on to my favorite 
favorite part of the show where you get to tell everybody, including me and Jeremy, something that we don't already know. So this time, Adam, you go first. All right. Well, there there was a um, kind of an idiom that was established a couple of years ago. I think it was by Maggie Haberman when she was still writing for Politico. And it's that 40 is the new 50 in politics that, you know, it used to be that you want to get your approval rating, your favorability rating it has to be at least 50 percent if you want to win an election. But I think recent election cycles have proven that, you know, as, as things have become more and more partisan in America, that it's actually 40 percent is the mark that you're looking to hit. And a new Marquette University law school poll in Wisconsin that was released this week sort of underscores that. I was looking at the, the favorability and unfavorable ratings for the three remaining presidential candidates in this race, which would be Donald Trump, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And all of them are viewed unfavorably by at least half of Wisconsin voters. So Trump's fave unfavor rating is 45-50. Joe Biden's is actually 39-50. He's 11 points underwater in Wisconsin. The general election campaign hasn't even really begun yet. Bernie Sanders is actually the most unpopular among them all, uh, 36-54. So I guess maybe the, the lesson from all of this is that if you if you want to be liked by, by uh, more than half of the country's voters, uh, don't run for president. <laughs> I remember a certain prediction at the end of last year that whoever the Democratic presidential nominee would be would have the same kind of unfavorability numbers as Hillary Clinton. Do you guys remember that? I don't know if you remember who made that prediction and that we would look oh. back and Hillary Clinton wouldn't be seen as quite as weak a candidate as we all thought she was in 2016. Kristen, you're looking like you genuinely don't remember. I totally don't remember this, saying this that. Prediction. Did you say I'm that? Gonna, I'm going to send was you the audio clip. Please do. We're going to have to go back and get the clip. Did I say Jeremy, that? Jeremy, you should pull the yeah. clip from the year-end issue. Wait, and wait, wait. Hold be- on a second. Alex, what did I say? Say it again. Say it again. Okay. My prediction when we asked for, like, big predictions yeah. for 2020 okay. is that around this time, after the Democratic nominee emerges and that they have a matchup with Donald Trump, that we would realize that Hillary Clinton was not actually an especially weak candidate against him, that the, whoever the Democratic nominee was would have similarly poor, favorable, or unfavorable numbers, that that was just the reality for presidential candidates in the in the modern age. And I'm just saying that the Wisconsin poll suggests suggests that that might be right. I'm sorry. Isn't Wisconsin essentially Canada? I mean, does it even count? <laughs> wow. Wow. I don't care to respond. 30 seconds Man, to respond. Long I, ago. I, yeah, I know. I my I'm mentions gonna, are going to be blowing up. This is horrible. Listen, Wisconsin, <laughs> I hired Adam Wallner, so it means I really like you. This is all that's, just meant to be funny. I'm going to move on. Yeah. Alex, you're up. <laughs> all right. Just one, one arrowing statistic. I mentioned earlier that I was on a, a call with Democratic pollsters. You're really polling responses and, and the public's view of the coronavirus crisis. They said when they polled last week, last Tuesday, actually 41% of Americans knew someone who had lost their job, right? That is a a really eye-opening stat. Okay, well, this week, the number is 60%. They say 60% of Americans know someone who has lost their job as a result of the coronavirus crisis. And I think, unfortunately, that number is going to swell even further based on some of the unemployment claims coming out. And, it, you know, we've, we've mentioned it a few times on the show. Obviously, the public health crisis is first and foremost. As we move into the summer and beyond, it is going to be as much about an economic crisis and how the country recovers. And that will tie directly into President Trump's own re-election campaign, of course. All of that is true, and I think increasingly we're going to find we are all able to pretty soon start talking about what our rebuilding story is around America, community by community, and I think that's going to be an important point for the three of us and Jeremy, the four of us, to grapple with on this podcast. I think the rebuilding of America is is a really important storyline that we need to participate in. 
All right, and so I'm going to wrap us up here. Thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you to our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. Talk to you next week.